Hello and welcome to Nerd World, where we bring you knowledge on all that's unfolding in the world around you. I'm Julia, your host. In today's episode, we're exceptionally fortunate to have Joseph Ingram as our guest. Joe's career includes 30 years at the World Bank in a variety of senior management roles. He's worked closely with the UN and the World Trade Organization as the bank's special representative. He served as president of the North-South Institute, which is a significant, as you'll hear later in the episode, Canadian think tank. In our conversation, Joe introduces some lesser discussed indicators for measuring economic and social progress and communicates the vital roles people, especially young people, need to play if we're to stand a chance against the inexorable challenges we face. It's an important conversation about issues we simply cannot remain ignorant about or turn a blind eye to. It becomes clear how crucial it is for every individual to be informed and ensure the equilibrium of human rights extending from self-interested to collective. Joe also writes extensively for iPolitics and The Hill Times, two Canadian digital news outlets. So we begin by getting his expert take on what is going on in American politics. Welcome, Joe. Thank you so much for being with us. In terms of how tumultuous it's been in American politics, at the moment I read that the Trump administration is saying they are going to allow this transition to happen, so to speak. Does that mean it's going to be smooth? I imagine that might be a bit hopeful, thinking it's going to be a seamless transition to Biden as president. Well, I think it's going to follow its, sort of its constitutional uh, dictates, if you will, or the, the constitutional process. There will be a transition. No, it's, it's not going to be smooth, probably, in the sense that the General Services Administration, yes, will begin to cooperate. As you saw yesterday, they agreed to. So funds have been released by the uh, Trump administration to allow a transition to take place. But behind the scenes, there is a, uh, an attempt by Trump and by elements in the Republican Party to create as difficult a situation as they can for the Biden administration to implement and apply its policy priorities during the Biden term. And I think Trump is going to do his utmost to lay landmines for the new administration, both in terms of domestic policy and in terms of foreign policy. What is very important are the by-elections coming up in the state of Georgia in January. Clearly, if the Democrats can win those two seats in Georgia, then it will give them a de facto majority in the Senate. They'll be 50 seats each. And Kamala Harris as vice president and as president of, of the Senate would have the deciding vote. So they would be in a much stronger position to pass legislation through the Congress, having her as the deciding vote in the Senate would obviously make life easier for the Biden administration in implementing its policy agenda. Some of the leaders, the Republican leaders in the Senate that are working with the Trump administration to make uh, life as difficult as possible for the incoming Biden administration. And I, I think their long-term objective is to, to discredit not just the administration, itself, but also the policy ideas and the policy priorities which the administration 
we hope and we think we'll, we'll seek to implement them. Many of those are considered quote unquote progressive policies and progressive ideas. And they are anathema to not just Donald Trump, although I don't think Trump is driven by any particular ideology. I think he's driven by opportunities and uh, by whatever suits him personally. Uh, but it, it, it will make things much more difficult for the Biden administration if, if those seats are not won by them. And they would be forced, in effect, to implement a lot of their policies through presidential fiat, through decrees, uh, which, as you know, don't become law in the sense that something that's approved by the legislature, by the, by, by the Congress, becomes law. And they can be easily undone by the next president, if he happens to be a Republican. So it's not going to be easy. And the other thing is that they're, in a sense, hamstringing the Biden administration also in an area which is extremely important right now in, in the shorter term, and that is in dealing with the pandemic. And the Biden administration is going to no doubt be spending the first three, four or five months in dealing with the pandemic and trying to bring it under control. But they've appointed, you know, they've appointed a very good team of professionals, medical scientists and social scientists to, to try to deal with the, the unprecedented impact of the pandemic, not just on, on health in the United States, but also on, on the, the American and wider global economy. So, yes, there, there is an attempt by the, and part of the attempt too, and, and you can take Trump at his well. He hasn't said it, but in so many words, he has. Is is really revenge on on the uh, the Democrats and on the new administration? Trump associates Biden obviously with President Obama and his administration, and he feels that to the Democrats effectively hamstrung him for his four years in office by pursuing uh, impeachment charges and proceedings and. Uh, uh, accusing him personally and members of his administration of colluding uh, with with the Russians, and then of course uh, trying to uh, get favors from the Ukrainians uh, in the in the months leading up to the elections. So yes, there is a you know this is unprecedented. It's never happened. I I don't think in certainly not in, in terms of modern U.S. history that you've had this kind of of messy transition. And it's not over yet. I mean, Trump yesterday said that he continues to pursue his his options in court, even though all but one of 35 cases filed have been uh, rejected. And in a sense, this will also mean that the country will remain divided. I know it always is to some extent, but in terms of Trump's followers, they will feel that this government or the policies in place to elect leaders is not fair or it's it's being discredited by Trump's reaction. So that will also make it difficult to have some form of a unified country in solving issues like the pandemic and other important issues that the world is facing at the moment. Yeah, I, I, that's absolutely true. Uh, you know, there are, if you look at the election results, although Biden won by a landslide, actually, if you consider the terms that Trump used in 2016, Biden has won not only the same number of electoral college votes as Trump, did 306, 
but he yeah. won the popular vote by more than double the uh, the number of votes by which Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. So, I mean, it's close. To, I think currently it's somewhere between six and seven million votes. That is an enormous difference. Uh, I don't think there's been as wide a gap between two presidential candidates since uh, FDR. And uh, so that's highly significant. You You have over 80 million people now, and the vote counting still isn't finished, and it continues to to go in, in, in Biden's favor. But as you said, you know, there are some 73 million who voted for Trump. And uh, because of the doubts Trump has been sowing about the fairness of the elections, a lot of those people who are given to believing some of these crazy conspiracy theories are going to really have doubts in the uh, the fairness of the U.S. election system. And, you know, in a sense, it, it also, it's interesting because that reflects somewhat uh, what's happening even at the global level. There was a, a survey done earlier this year by Cambridge University in the U.K., uh, a global survey, which has shown support for democracy, generally speaking, for democracy at a low ebb and especially amongst the younger people in the world, those between the ages of 18 and 30. And uh, so that it, in, a, in a sense, it's consistent, but in a sense, it isn't consistent in that many of those supporting Trump are older people, especially white males over 60 without college educations. That's where he gets the core of his support. But the what the survey, the Cambridge survey showed was not so much a disappointment and a decline in support, and I misstated it, for democracy itself, for the concept of democracy, but rather for what democracy has delivered and been able to deliver today. In other words, the results. And that, of course, is a reflection of the leadership. So there's been declining support globally for the leadership of democratic countries and, and democratic governments. And, and that's important. So what you say is correct, but it's also part, I think, of, of, a, wider, of a wider concern in, in many democratic countries with the results that democracy has bought, brought. And one of those results, and this is also reflected in the United States, is the growing gap in uh, income within countries, income inequality, which in the United States is, and especially under Donald Trump, is very, very high. You know, there's a, a metric which we economists use to measure income inequality. It's called the Gini coefficient, and it's a, an income-based metric. And when you apply that metric to the United States, and, and the metric measures from zero to one, one being one individual in society basically holds all the wealth in that society. Zero meaning perfect equality. Okay, everybody has the same amount of wealth. So the income inequality in the United States under Donald Trump has just risen significantly. It's about 0.425, and, and that is amongst the highest in the world. It's actually on a par with South Africa. South Africa is one of the maybe the highest Gini coefficient or amongst the three or four highest Gini coefficients of, of any country on the planet. 
And the U.S. is very close to that, as is Russia. So that is one of the major issues, especially amongst young people who perceive this growing income inequality. And, and of course, it's extreme in the United States, especially under Trump. And that's such an interesting way of actually measuring a country's progress, because obviously we saw with Trump a lot of claims being made about him improving the economy so much. But if you look at things purely from the point of uh, of looking at a country's GDP, and that reminds me of a conversation I saw you have on a nonviolent economy and how it is such an issue to only look at a country's GDP and base it off that. Because now if we look at this index that you've given as an example, it gives a very different picture of a country, how well they're doing, or rather who is doing well in that country. Yeah, I I think what's reflective also, not just the GDP, but this morning, my wife and I were just looking at CNN. And of course, they were announcing an all, and Fox News especially, uh, and of course, Donald Trump yesterday, the one statement he made was what? It was about the financial markets, the stock market in the U.S. surpassed 30,000, which is historically, okay? It's never been over 30,000. And of course, he took credit for that. Uh, what all the pundits and experts are saying is what pushed it over 30,000 were essentially two things. One, the discovery of this new vaccine the third, the latest, and perhaps more importantly, the nomination yesterday by Joe Biden of his cabinet picks, and especially the fact that he has selected Janet Yellen to be the next head of the Treasury and is retaining Jerome Powell as head of the Federal Reserve. It was those three things, if you will, that pushed the level of of the stock market over 30,000. Now, Everybody is touting that, and Trump is touting it. But what is is ridiculous is, of course, at the same time, you've got anywhere between 13 and 15 million people in the United States now unemployed as a result of the pandemic. And, of course, uh, the impact of some of, of Donald Trump's policies, especially his policies on trade and his, his so-called tax reform. So, and that, like GDP, the level... The value of the, of the stock market, the, I think it was the Dow, like GDP, uh, reflects one thing. It, it reflects Wall Street and, and what's happening on Wall Street. It doesn't reflect what's happening on Main Street in the United States. And that's the problem with GDP itself. First of all, in the United States, uh, GDP has really not move very much. Even before the pandemic hit, you recall Donald Trump promising to reach levels of 4 and 5% growth in GDP in the United States. Well, the highest he ever got, I think, was 2.8%, which is the basically the same level as was achieved under the Obama administration. Uh, but under the Obama administration, of course, they went from a very low level following the financial crash in 2008 to consistently positive growth with rising GDP. But the problem with GDP, of course, is that it's it's an income-based metric. It doesn't measure what is happening more broadly in, in, in the economy and more broadly in society. What's been happening in the U.S., the reason that Trump's economic, so-called economic success was, and, and I've written about this, I've called it a bit of a mirage. It's a, a success built, you know, like his 
Taj Mahal Casino, which of course was all glitz and glamour, but went bankrupt. Trump's economy was a bit like that, like the Taj Mahal Casino, all glitz and glamour with uh, GDP at 2.8%, which isn't, isn't great. But when you look underneath that income-based metric, what do you find? You find that productivity under Trump was not moving at all, that the level of real wages in the United States had not, has not moved at all. In fact, it hasn't moved much in the last 30 years. And uh, you find that under Trump, although this was happening before even, the percentage of those in the United States who are categorized as being in the middle class fell from about 62% to, I, I think, around 52 or 53%. And that continued under Trump. In fact, it, it accelerated fall in the number of people defined as middle class. And then, of course, at the same time, with his so-called tax reform, you basically uh, were giving a, a huge windfall to the rich, to the wealthiest, and to the corporations, and it was unfinanced. So what they've done is they've run up very high levels of, of debt in the United States, which in and of itself in today's world is not necessarily a bad thing, because interest rates are are very, very low. In some respects, they're at 0%. But provided you use the leveraging, the borrowing you do, to invest in, in activities and in projects and in, in investments with high economic rates of return. Okay. In other words, investments like infrastructure, which creates jobs, like education, public health, that's the basis of increased productivity Okay, and long-term growth in the economy. And Trump has not done that. He's been unable to do it because of the tax cuts. If you look at tax revenues, they have declined. And so the, 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 he's put the, the U.S. economy on a, on a very fragile footing. And uh, it certainly isn't, and we're seeing that with the pandemic, it certainly isn't resilient to these kinds of global, and some of them being inexorable, trends which the U.S. is confronting. And so. Uh, the GDP governments and international institutions that work with governments, like the International Monetary Fund, like my old employer, the World Bank, like the African Development Bank, need to measure economic progress using a much broader set of instruments, measuring a much broader set of econo or economic and social uh, progress. And uh, some governments are beginning to recognize that and are using what they call global progress indicators or gross progress indicators, what they call GPI. And they look at a range of, uh, of indicators to see what's happening in the economy, okay? Not just income-based indicators reflecting impact on the environment, on, on health, on social welfare, that sort of thing. What would examples of these governments be? Because I, I always wonder who's getting it right. In a sense, we tend to criticize many governments for how they are either measuring their country's progress or what they're implementing in terms of policy, which are sort of getting it right. Which are these examples that are using the, the GPI? Well, unfortunately, at the national level, there are very few. The one that, that, that most people that comes to mind immediately is Bhutan, where they use something called, and they have developed the concept, and it's actually gotten some credence uh, over the past decade or and a half, 
gross national happiness they talk about, okay? And that's what they measure. That has become their principal indicator or indicators because it's a, a subset. It includes income, but it also includes other metrics. So Bhutan is, is a government which, which is doing that. The Chinese government has begun to do this, in, not at, so much at the national level, but some of the provinces and some of the cities in China are now using multiple indexes to measure economic and social progress. A number of states in the United States, state governments have begun to do that. Maryland being one, I think Minnesota being another. And in Canada, a number of cities, the city of Edmonton, province of Alberta, and the Canadian government itself is now, and the new finance minister, Christian Freeland, has been talking about the importance of using broader indicators. I dare say, I don't know for a fact, but my guess is that the government of New Zealand, Jacinda Hearn and her government, are looking uh, and are using broader indicators of, of economic and social progress. And then a number of governments in Europe ha have begun to do the same thing. I think the um, Scandinavian, a number of the Scandinavian governments are defining and, and designing policy which is reflective of broader economic and social progress. So there are a, a number of governments which are beginning to, to use these broader indicators. And I think that that process will, will accelerate, not just as a result of the deficiencies that the pandemic has revealed, but also because of the imminent threat posed by global warming. The, the interesting thing is that back in 2012, I was president of a Canadian research institute and policy think tank called the North-South Institute. And I was invited to give a lecture, a keynote presentation in China in Haiku. The audience was, was quite large. There were probably around 800 people there. And they included, the audience included members of the Central, several members of the Central Committee from, from Beijing of the Communist Party. And then people also from provinces and cities around, around the China. It was sponsored by the China Institute for Research and Development, which is based in Haiku, and by GTZ, which is the German Development Agency, and by the UN Development Program. And I was asked to talk about the critical need for a new growth paradigm. I talked about this over-reliance on GDP, and I was amazed at how responsive people in the audience were from all over China, criticizing the Chinese government and the Central Committee of the Communist Party for relying so exclusively and so heavily on GDP. Now, China has a critical problem because of the size of its population. They need GDP to grow at a very high rate if they're going to absorb and create jobs for the number of new young people coming into the Chinese labor force. So that was very important. And, and what I subsequently learned, two or three years later, I got an email from the organizer, the vice president of CIRID, of the China Institute for Reform and Development, telling me that some 82 cities in China had adopted these broader growth paradigms. So that's happening. Now, the same concept is being promoted, and not necessarily being applied yet, but being promoted by the United Nations. And that concept is reflected in the SDGs. You know what the SDGs are? No. <laughs> Okay, that's it. You've just proved my point. <laughs> okay, 
The SDGs are, it stands for Sustainable Development Goals. Okay, and the Sustainable Development Goals were adopted and signed on to by 192 governments, the 192 member governments in the UN, including South Africa. And they were adopted in 2015. And it's part of what is called the UN Agenda for 2030. And the Sustainable Development Goals, as I said, they were signed on to by 192 member governments with targets and 230 indicators for being able to measure progress in those targets. There are 17 goals, and they include everything from income growth to social justice, access to fair and legal system and justice, to food and nutrition, to women's rights. They cover 17 broad areas of economic progress and social progress and legal and institutional progress. As I said, the 192 governments that signed on to those indicators have set for themselves targets in each of the 17 areas that they are supposed to try to achieve. Now, very few people even know what the sustainable development goals are. I asked you the question, what are the SDGs? And you didn't know. I asked my sister, who's an emeritus professor in Canada at university, and I said to her, you know what the SDGs are? And she didn't know. So there is a problem. There's a major problem with communicating to the general population. And I dare say probably some of the governments who signed the SDGs don't know what they are either. But uh, no, I'm, I would hope not. But uh, there, is a, there is a broader problem. But the fact that these exist and that they were adopted is very, very important. Now, my institute, the North-South Institute, which I ran for a number of years in Ottawa, we contributed to the formulation of those goals. And the person who was leading that effort is a former colleague of mine at the World Bank, who's now at the Brookings Institute in Washington. And he led the task force that was to implement or was to formulate the sustainable development goals. My, my institute at the time, we were asked by the, the leader of the, the team who reported directly to the UN Secretary General and to David Cameron, the former Prime Minister of the UK, who was, was leading it at the political level, uh, asked me and asked us, if my institute, if we could provide somebody full-time for a year or eight months, uh, it ended up being closer to a year, uh, to work as a member of the team formulating those goals. Now, what's happened since is that, like you, many people, and especially in the public, don't know what they are and don't know they exist. But they constitute a global compact, if you will, a global framework, a global platform for a multilateral effort and for all countries to cooperate in achieving these targets and realizing those goals. Within them, of course, implicit in them is the fact that you will, you know, it's no longer just an income-based metric which determines whether you're making progress or not. You have to make progress on all 17 of those goals. So that's what's happening at the global level. The problem is, and you've just indicated this, very few people know what the, the sustainable development goals are. And now they're needed more than ever, as the global pandemic, as COVID has revealed. It's revealed the weaknesses in several of the areas which those sustainable, the SDGs, address. So very important. And in order for things like these SDGs to be reached and for governments to fulfill their agreements or their promises, you need that public 
pressure. And if the public doesn't even really know the ins and outs of these sorts of things, then that public pressure isn't going to exist. So the same with the Paris agreements, for instance, climate change. We always hearing that there is this framework that governments are supposed to be sort of playing their part in. But do we really know what's going on and if governments are going to reach these goals? That's, I guess that's one of the big issues. Yeah, I mean, this is part of a broader problem of, and and I mentioned the, the survey done by Cambridge University and the dissatisfaction with the way in which democracies are uh, are functioning and the leadership. There's an absence of political will on the part of many governments and economists and political scientists use that term frequently. And, and so the issue, what you're really asking is how do you generate the political will to bring about these kinds of reforms? You know, there's, there's a hierarchy of things that have to be done. Obviously at the top is electing political leaders who are committed to implementing these kinds of reforms and who recognize at the policy level, what needs to be done. And many of the challenges we face are challenges which require not just politicians, but require responses that are scientifically based and that are based on, and I I hate to use the term, but empirical evidence, if you will. And um, so you need politicians who, who understand that and who are capable of communicating and conveying to the general public, A, what those challenges are, and B, what sorts of policy solutions are needed to confront those challenges, to address them. And then three, what you need also uh, in, in order to get those kinds of people elected, but also to support them when, when and if they take office, you need mobilization from civil society, if I can use the term broadly, and especially amongst young people. And that means demonstrating, that means mobilizing people to vote, that means writing and and publishing opinion pieces, that means developing social platforms, communication platforms like you and Matt have done at NOAA in South Africa. And that's terribly important. It also means, I think, since you asked about the sustainable development goals, they are a UN-managed instrument, if you will, or platform. It also means that the UN itself and the agencies which are most directly involved in ensuring the implementation of those goals are staffed by people who reflect the globe and society more broadly. So that means that young people, especially, need to be more engaged and more involved in and more employed by, if you will, UN organizations, especially the specialized agencies of the United Nations. When I was with the bank and also with the North-South Institute, I worked very closely with the United Nations and their development agencies. A, as as the World Bank Special Representative to the United Nations and the World Trade Organization for four years in Geneva, I worked very closely with all the UN agencies based in Geneva and also based in Rome and Vienna. And then as Director of World Bank Programs in the field in Bosnia and Herzegovina and then in parts of Africa, I worked very closely also with UN uh, specialized agencies, development agencies, especially the United Nations Development Program. Amongst those agencies themselves, there hasn't been as much coherence. I wouldn't say they're they're dysfunction, but there hasn't been as much coherence and cooperation amongst them as there should have been. And they, uh, 
we're often, and we as the World Bank in, in, in Bosnia, for example, uh, the high representative in Bosnia, who was representing the signatory governments of the Dayton Peace Accords, was Lord Paddy Ashdown. And Paddy, because of this dysfunction amongst the various UN development agencies, UNDP, UNICEF, UNESCO, uh, UNIDO, etc., the World Health Organization, the ILO, because of the the lack of coherence and uh, cohesive. Patty designated the World Bank, myself, to in effect be the lead agency on economic and social development reform in Bosnia. He had a group, his board of principals, the ambassadors and heads of agencies, there were 12 of us, that met once a week to coordinate the impact of the various uh, agencies represented in Bosnia. And he asked me to to coordinate that group. Now, that shouldn't, in a sense, it shouldn't have been me. It should have been the country coordinator for the UN system, who normally was the representative of the UNDP. However, because of the the internal pressures and competing pressures amongst the various UN development agencies, that wasn't happening well. I won't go into the details, but it's, it's, it's worth a book. And so that's got to happen within the UN system. At the country level, the country coordinator needs to be clearly designated. He needs to be primus inter pares, if I could use the Latin term, first amongst equals. And he needs to take the lead in terms of coordinating and and implementing and ensuring a a smooth implementation of the UN strategy within within a particular country. So there, there are major reforms that need to be made within the UN development system. The current Secretary General is, is trying to do that, uh, is very cognizant of the need to do this. In fact, the interesting thing is that I worked with him in Geneva. He was then the head of UNHCR, UN High Commissioner for Refugees, uh, Tony Guterres, and I, I worked closely with Tony because we were trying, as the World Bank, we were trying to create some sort of policy coherence amongst all the development, major development agencies represented in Geneva so that there could be coherence on issues relating to refugees in the case of UNHCR. And of course, relating to labor policy and labor policy reforms uh, with the, the ILO, the International Labor Organization. So there are huge reforms that have to be implemented within the UN system. Otherwise, you know, if the UN really risks, how can I put it delicately, at least on the development side, risks drifting into irrelevance, if you will, with respect to development internationally. And now if you have the UN running optimally and you have the right people, so to speak, employed who are forward thinking in these various elements of development and environmental affairs like climate change, how much power, if that's the right word, does the UN have to, or, or how, how are they able to hold governments accountable when governments do agree to, let's say, the, the, the SDGs or the Paris Agreement or one of these things that, that, that is framework? Can they hold governments accountable to fulfill their promises? Now, these are voluntary Those targets and performance indicators, like the Paris Climate Accord, were developed by the the governments themselves. 
So they're nationally divided. They set their own targets, although the indicators were set more centrally. They will be monitored. Now, can the UN do anything about about uh, you know sanctioning a government or or if, if no, obviously they can't. That's not their role, and governments uh, wouldn't accept that. What they can do, and where they need to do more is to publicly name and shame governments that are not making the effort so they can produce reports. And the UN doesn't like to do that generally because these are their member governments. But there are organizations which do publicly name and shame governments. One of them, for example, a perfect example being Transparency International. And Transparency International was created many years ago, some 20 years ago now they've been in existence, by former colleagues of mine at the World Bank, one being a very close friend of mine. He's a German lawyer, or was a, trained as a lawyer, and worked many years at the bank. His name is Peter Eigen, and the other being a, a Brit named Frank Vogel. And they produce a, a report annually, Transparency International does, which basically evaluates the levels of transparency and levels of corruption present in each country. And they effectively rank them. So they name and shame them. And you don't want to find yourself amongst the top 10 or even 20 or even 30 on the planet in terms of levels of corruption. They rank countries. South Africa, as you know, has typically not done very well. The, the worst offenders, and I worked in, in both countries for many years, were often either Nigeria and or Cameroon. For many years, Cameroon was number one on the list was considered the most corrupt country on the planet. You know, and, and the, the other country in which I worked uh, also, which was high on that list, was Bosnia and Herzegovina. Now, they weren't that way because I was there. <laughs> <laughs> what I tried to do is, is, is clean things up and help the government in, uh, in dealing with some of that corruption. And to some extent, we were successful. And in Bosnia, I worked very closely with, with Patty Ashdown, who was the high representative and had plenty potentiary powers. He had the power to dismiss elected officials if they were found to be violating both the spirit and the, the law of the Dayton Agreement. And he did, including a president, one of the presidents of, of Bosnia and Herzegovina, because he had been associated with war crimes, but others also involved in corruption. He had power of decree representing the international community we worked very, very closely with Patty, trying to clean up corruption. Part of a program that we supported, he dismissed all the judges, dismantled the judicial system completely, fired all of the judges in the country who were all political appointees, very corrupt system. And in four months or four to six months, uh, we had a new uh, judicial system functioning with judges appointed based on experience. Uh, qualifications that, rather than uh, on, on political affiliation or uh, whom, whom they knew. So it, it's very important uh, to uh, name and shame. I think that's one of the ways in which, and, and it, Transparency International isn't the only organization that does that. Uh, even the World Bank, in a sense, ha has been doing it through its doing business report, which monitors the investment environment in each of its borrowing countries. From a legal point of view, looks at the legislation, the laws in place that affect both domestic and foreign investment, including the, the court system and, and the judicial system. If these uh, organizations like the UN or the World Bank who act 
more as advisory intergovernmental bodies that can't actually regulate and uh, hold governments accountable. It's sort of, if they just give the information and they name and shame, then it gives the public ammunition to sort of put pressure on the political institutions. Then it's kind of in the general public's hands to hold governments accountable. Is that fair in saying? Yeah, absolutely. And the you know, the problem is often, of course, that these reports produced by these organizations don't find their way into the hands of the public. Although, in fairness, I know that Transparency International, its reports, when they were issued, if you've got a free press in the country, you know, the press will generally get hold of these reports and will reproduce parts of them, or at least uh, journalists will write stories on them and reveal their findings to the public. That happens. But of course, you need a free press. And I can tell you in certain countries that does not happen. In, in the case of South Africa, you know, for the first time, the South African government has gone to the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank for financial support. And they have to, because, of course, their public finance situation is, is, is in a disastrous state. And their capacity, their ability to borrow on international capital markets had been eroding with international ratings agencies downgrading the value and the quality of South African paper, uh, borrowing and bonds. And one of the things which the ANC did not like about this turning to the IMF and the Bretton Woods institutions was the fact that it would come with conditions attached. And that was obviously Cyril Ramaphosa knows that, and he is going to do it. He's turning to them because it gives him also a lever to, uh, to use against those in the ANC who don't want to be exposed, who don't want those conditions to be applied, because they, in effect, will be holding the government accountable. And the funds that have been allocated for South Africa, for the uh, Treasury and its support, its balance of payments and its budget, will not be released. They won't be dispersed unless certain conditions are met. And I'm quite sure, I don't know the details, I haven't seen the, the agreement, but my knowing the institution well and knowing the new head of the IMF, she was a colleague of mine at the bank and we were classmates together at Harvard Business School, I know Kristalina, and she knows South Africa, and she is a, a staunch advocate of clean government and of going after corrupt government. So they will no doubt hold the South African government to account and require that as a condition of dispersing these funds, which they desperately need, they will need to implement reforms, especially with respect to the management of state-owned enterprises, not just ESCOM, but, but other big ones as well. And government will need to function more effectively and more cleanly. So that, that's an international institution. And of course, this is being publicized in South Africa. I do read some of the South Africa press, but it's not going to be easy. Vested interests will push back hard, as you, as you well know. And uh, Ramaphosa will not have an easy time. You also spoke a little earlier about electing, about the public electing officials, presidents, uh, or form, forms of government that respect science and specifically with relation to climate change we're seeing in a lot of the developing countries if i or when i say developing i'm, I'm thinking specifically of BRICS, and you see russia and uh, brazil and amongst others with leaders who possibly don't value 
science or alternatively have these agendas. And in terms of getting governments to follow the regulations with regard to development that the World Bank or with the framework that the UN provides, how how important is it to elect these officials who really do value science? I imagine imperative. <laughs> well, I think it's in today's world, unfortunately, it's become even more important. It's it's critically important because the challenges that we face as a planet are, and there are some inexorable ones. In other words, ones that we cannot stop. We can manage them. We can change their their you know their direction. We can change the the pace at which they're they're happening. Several of them are of an existential nature. In other words, they are a threat to life on the planet as we know it and to our civilization uh, as we as we know them. So they not only require a, a global response, as the pandemic is revealing, but they will also require a response based on the knowledge of natural scientists as well as social scientists. And the evidence that those scientists produce, which should be empirically derived evidence. In other words, evidence that we know that reflects success, what has worked and what has not worked. So that becomes critical. Obviously, the pandemic, we're seeing that now. You have in the United States a situation which is potentially it's catastrophic. Because the president and his acolytes have been so inconsistent and have not listened effectively to the scientists. They did not listen to the World Health Organization at the outset, which right from day one, despite you know many flaws in the way the WHO reacted, one thing they did say at the outset was test, test, and test. Trace, trace, and trace. And you've had Donald Trump, of course, who has, rather than listen to a scientist, has been advocating all kinds of bogus and, and absolutely stupid solutions to treating it from hydrochloroquine to hydroxychloroquine to ingesting bleach. That's not based on science. That's based, you know, this is what I call, and in in he and his acolytes, that, you know, this is stupidity on steroids. And, and then, of course, in Brazil, you have somebody like Bolsonaro who's doing the same thing, who has said, oh, you know, COVID, it's like a little more severe than the common cold. And then Boris Johnson in the UK, at least at the outset, was listening to who? He was listening to Steve Hilton, who's now, a, you know, a, one of these people on Fox News advocating uh, herd immunity. Where's that gotten them? And then in Turkey, you had a similar problem. And of course, in India, you've got Modi with the similar. I mean, these are the, the five countries, OK, the US, the UK, Russia, Brazil and Turkey, since the beginning, they have been pretty much consistently the, the, the five countries with the highest number of cases and the most deaths. And it's no coincidence that those five countries are all led by populists, all of them. And typical of, of these populists is the belief that they know it all. They are narcissists. They know it all. They know it better. And the scientists don't know what they're talking about. That's a, that's a serious problem. And it's going to be an even bigger problem as we confront one of the other inexorables and something which really is potentially existential, global warming. If you don't have the people and the politicians, our leaders listening to the scientists on global warming, we are really in for very uh, tough times as we go forward. People have seen global warming, as I said in, in, in a piece I wrote, it's kind of a, a tsunami, but it's a very distant tsunami. And we, we, you know, they don't really worry about it. 
Although in the last year or two, now the tsunami is getting closer and closer and more people are starting to worry. And when you think that this year a record of 31 named hurricanes thus far in 2020, that's a record. Uh, that's never happened before. And that's, that's affecting people inhabiting coastal areas of the Gulf of Mexico, the Southern United States, and large parts of Asia, East and Southern Asia. And then you had record heat this year. And then 2020, 2019 were the two hottest years on record. The two hottest years on record with the highest temperature ever recorded on the planet this year in California, 54.4 degrees Celsius. And then you had wildfires, consumed huge uh, swaths of, uh, of forest and communities, not just forests this time, but huge communities. And in the Arctic this year, they recorded a record high temperature of 38 degrees Celsius. These are real indicators of problems. And the worst, the biggest and most disturbing indicator is that the sensors in Hawaii, which measure the atmosphere and measure the CO2 composition in the atmosphere, this year they measured an atmosphere of 417 parts per million CO2. I mean, in 3 million years, because they're able to go back and measure using cores of, of ice samples in the Arctic and Antarctic, in 3 million years, it's, it's never come close to that. It was 300 and uh, I forget what it was, 315 parts per million was recorded in 1958. So we're at 417 parts per million. So that's the biggest canary in the gold mine, if you will. And so we need to get that kind of information out to the general public. And especially and young people, Greta Thunberg, bless her heart, she's doing a fantastic job. But more and more people need to understand that. And, and when you consider that is happening in a world where the global, the average global temperature has risen by only one degree Celsius above its level prior to the Industrial Revolution, only by one degree Celsius. Scientists are predicting that there will likely be a temperature rise of at least 3.5 Celsius later this century. And that's based on the commitments already made in Paris in 2015 under the Paris Climate Accord. I, I mention this simply to reveal how, how serious the problem is and that that tsunami I talked about is no longer way off in the distance. It is quickly approaching shore. And unless we act decisively and quickly, we're going to have serious problems and the planet is going to become basically unlivable. And it's going to create massive movements of populations, especially in poorer areas, which are now affected by COVID. It's going to create huge social problems. And so we, we really face important issues to the future of, of, of life as we've known it on the planet, unless we act. And so young people need to be mobilizing themselves to, uh, to elect politicians and leaders who understand this, who understand the science. And it, it has a lot to do also with human rights and uh, the collective versus individual rights. The libertarians, who people who support Trump and Bolsonaro and these people, the excuses they're doing are that, you know, by forcing me to wear a mask or forcing me to, to drive an electric vehicle or a hybrid vehicle eventually or posing a carbon tax and thereby raising of petroleum infringes on my rights as an individual. Well, the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights talks about individual rights and collective rights and responsibilities. And the two are inseparable. You can't put one over the other. We need to rebalance that 
equilibrium between the two and give more importance to collective rights and responsibilities. As we, you know, you, you're not allowed to smoke on a passenger aircraft. Is that an infringement on your, your individual right? Uh, on the other side of the, uh, of the spectrum, you have, of course, the Chinese who uh, are putting all the emphasis on collective rights. Those are the two poles, the two extremes. You have the U.S. on the one hand, which is, of course, not now under Biden so much, we'll see, but the U.S., which has been the champion of individual rights, civil and political rights, and, of course, China and many of the developing countries, which have been the champions of collective rights, economic, social, and cultural rights. And what you need globally is a balance between the two. But the balance has to swing back now more to collective rights and responsibilities, because the kinds of threats we now face are going to require a strategically global response. And that almost circles back to what we discussed in the beginning and how when the world is facing such huge threats in the form of the COVID pandemic and the climate change pandemic, there are so many huge issues that we're facing. And it almost seems ridiculous that there are political squabbles going on that are detracting from countries actually unifying and facing these issues that are going to affect everybody. And I mean, you spoke about how it will affect developing countries, which will cause massive migration. That's then going to affect developed countries all the same. So it just seems nonsensical that people are not unifying and you can't believe that some of the most significant governments in the world are not taking these threats as seriously as they need to be taken. I agree with you. It's it's depressing in some respects. However, on the other hand, there's, you know, there, there's some glimmers of hope. The election of Joe Biden in the United States and the Democrats, I think, is hopeful. And it's quite clear that he is going to reconnect with the rest of the world. It's no longer, he's not going to pursue an America first policy. His America is back again policy means that we and the, and I'm not an American, but what it means is the United States is going to reconnect with the rest of the world, is going to renew its its ties uh, and its working relationships with international institutions and multilateral bodies and with its allies. It's an implicit recognition, although he said it explicitly as well, that what is needed to respond to many of these challenges is a collective response a global response, renewing ties with Europe. Another, you know, when you look at what's happening in Thailand with the with young people primarily out in the streets demonstrating and willing to put their lives on the line and to go to jail, demonstrating against the, the corruption of the monarchy and of the government of Thailand. That's a very positive sign. What's happened in Hong Kong is also a positive sign. It shows that people, especially young people, are not prepared to accept the governments uh, that they have. I think that the demise of Trump, or at least his, his defeat, I'm not sure I can call it a demise, one can call it a demise yet, we have to see what happens and how he reinvents himself, it sends a, a positive signal and will take a lot of the air, the wind out of the sails of, of some of these other populist governments and leaders who really reject democracy by virtue of their action and who reject science. So hopefully Biden's election will have a ripple effect globally and we'll start to see these changes that can't come soon enough. Yeah, hopefully. The, you know, we've always been confronted by challenges. I think of my mother and her family in the 1930s, she was Polish and, and with what they were confronting then and what they had to go through in the Second World War and a large part of the European population 
when you think of what they had to go through, they, they were confronting terrible challenges as well. You know, life isn't easy. But anyway, I think, uh, as I said, I think the SDGs, I'll say it again, you know, they're, they're, they're an important instrument and they're an important platform uh, and they can help us strike that critical balance. And it's a balance that both nature, on the one hand, and humanity require if they are to coexist together on this planet. This was Joe Ingram. What a valuable contribution to our podcast. We're so grateful to have had him on, and we hope you found this important conversation as interesting and insightful as we did. Thank you so much for listening.